The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Paul Leslie Hour with our special guest, Michael Knowles, author of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. Just remember that the show is made possible by listeners like you. Just go to thepaulleslie.com and click on support the show. Thanks to all of you who have contributed. Now let's get into the interview. Hello. Hello, Mr. Knowles. Yes, hello. Hey, this is Paul Leslie. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Paul. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Nice to hear your voice. Yeah, no, it's uh, good to be heard. <laughs> connect with you. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on the show. Absolutely. Well, some of you might recognize that voice. Our special guest, Michael Knowles, has been called a national treasure. He's also been called a dapper, lib-triggering troll by Vanity Fair. You may wonder if he appreciates both descriptions. Knowles is a media personality, commentator, and much-lauded public speaker. His current events and cultural issues multi-platform program, The Michael Knowles Show, is always entertaining, informative, clever, humorous, and thought-provoking. Michael Knowles is also a published author. His new book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, is a complete examination of politically correct speech and censorship. It may well be a book for all times. Although certifiably a bestseller, it was completely ignored by the New York Times, only increasing my want to interview him here on the Paul Leslie Hour. If I may editorialize, it's an important book. So it's my pleasure to welcome articulator, media host, entertainer, and best-selling author, Michael Knowles. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Paul. The pleasure is all mine. So when somebody reads your book, Speechless, is there something you would like for the reader to get from reading the book? Yes. I'd, I'd like them to understand that the phenomenon that we call political correctness or wokeness or cancel culture goes back a lot farther than people think it does. It goes back not just 30 years, but it goes back about 100 years. And I want them to recognize that the reason that we have lost so much ground, the reason PC has been so effective, is because it lays a trap for conservatives, whereby, obviously, the, the squishes, the people who go soft on PC, obviously, they advance at the purpose. But even the more stalwart conservatives, even the, the people who seem to oppose PC the most, the, the ones who might call themselves free speech absolutists, even they will very often advance the purpose of political correctness because PC aims to knock down, to destroy all of the society's traditional standards. And when people react to that by abandoning standards altogether and by saying that we can say whatever we want, do whatever we want without consequence, that advances PC as well. And so it leads us into this position where because nature abhors a vacuum, if we abandon traditional standards, the leftist woke standard is going to take its place. Hmm. And as you say, going back a hundred years in the book, having read it, you really, really get to see the formation and everything. There's a lot of research. You can tell a lot of thoroughness in presenting all of the facts that you bring forth. As a result of your digging, was there something surprising you found as a result of writing Speechless? The most surprising thing I found is that 
I think a lot of conservatives go into this issue believing that we understand free speech and censorship much better than the left does, and that it's really all these insane leftist theorists and activists who have led us to the place that we are today, where you have rampant censorship by big tech oligarchs and by the word reality. But, but I think, actually, having studied this now for a year, year and a half or so, I think the left understands free speech and censorship better than conservatives do. I think they recognize that all societies are going to have standards. That's inevitable. I think they recognize that all societies are going to have taboos. And I think they set out to simply remake those standards and taboos, while conservatives are left not even understanding the way that standards play a role in society at all. I think that we would do very well to read those theorists who developed political correctness, wokeness, cancel culture, and to learn from them. Because as a tactical matter, I think they're much more sophisticated than conservatives are. Well, on that note, naming names, who out there do you think best understands politically correct speech? Well, of the of the leftists out there, I would say that notably the ones who took over the universities, I think they, they really got it. And he is now dead, but he was hugely influential. Herbert Marcuse would have been one of those people. He was a critical theorist of the Frankfurt School. He then reemerged in the 1960s as the father of the new left. He wrote an infamous essay called Repressive Tolerance, in which he said that tolerance cannot tolerate intolerance. And so a liberal intolerance would require that we basically just shut up all the conservatives and encourage the speech of the radicals. And so I, I obviously don't agree with that particular tactic, but I think his principle is absolutely correct. Namely, you really can't tolerate intolerance. And even our wonderfully open free speech regime in America is going to entail certain limits. Even John Locke, the father of liberalism, recognized that there would be certain limits to speech. John Milton, the author of Areopagitica, probably the most important and famous defense of free speech in the English language, even he said there had to be certain limits. To, to free speech. And so I think that uh, those guys really understood it. And, and the 1970s radical feminists, later on the, the radical academics in the 80s and 90s, and now politicians and big tech oligarchs today recognize that. And the people who seem to have the least of the grasp or the, the, the weakest grasp on free speech and censorship, sadly, is our own side, the conservatives. Hmm. Well, something that's gotten in the news lately your book, Speechless, was outselling more copies than any other, yet the New York Times completely blackballed it. On what <laughs> basis do you think that decision was made? Well, I, I'm in a way, I'm sort of pleased at the decision. I'm, I'm not pleased in that the fact that the New York Times is ignoring a book that was not only the number one national bestseller, but actually outsold their, their listed number one bestseller by 40%. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not pleased because that will limit the bookstores that the book goes into, and it actually will have an effect to suppress sales of the book. However, I'm pleased in that the New York Times proved my point, because if my central contention of the book is that leftists redefine all the terms to redefine reality, that, that manipulation of language is the most powerful tool in their arsenal, what the New York Times has done is redefine the term bestseller, and they actually did it Many years ago, in a court document, there was another author who sued the New York Times because he had a number one bestseller and a 
they refused to put him on the list. And as part of that settlement, the New York Times had to admit that their bestseller list does not actually track the best-selling books in the country, but is rather an editorial product from the New York Times. And so, of course, I'm not surprised that the New York Times didn't like my book. Really, I suppose I should take it as a badge of honor. (laughs) I guess so. What do you think that that says about how the New York Times sees their readers? (laughs) Well, you know, the, the New York Times doesn't have a very high opinion of their own readers, and I suppose that that's one uh, one issue the Times editorial board and I share an opinion on, <laughs> but it's it's unfortunate because the New York Times bestseller list still carries a lot of prestige. It does not, you know, speak obviously doesn't speak the truth, and it doesn't speak even to a, a majority of readers. But it carries prestige, and I think this is a another another example of how the left has infiltrated institutions that traditionally held a lot of power in the country and then wielded them for their own advantage. This goes back to the person that I really consider to be the the big Mac daddy of political correctness, Antonio Gramsci, the Marxist theorist and Italian communist politician. He was really active about a century ago, and he said that radicals needed to wage a war of position, not a war of maneuver where you advance and retreat, the war of position where you subvert, where you infiltrate, where you take positions of power in, in the prevailing institutions and then transform them for the benefit of radicals. So the, New York, the, the views of the New York Times editorial board are extraordinarily out of step with those of the American people. But they do still wield that prestige and they do still wield outsized influence. Hmm. Well, it does seem, from my perspective, the book seems to have been published at a most perfect time. Since I've read it, it seems like every single hour, not not exaggerating, <laughs> there's something. I mean, the latest news has the White House openly admitting they will actively render speech and opinions they deem dangerous. You know, did you get that feeling like, wow, this book just it came at the perfect time? I did. I, I had both joy and dismay because I knew that this would be very good for book sales and and beyond even the sales, it would be very good at proving my thesis, which I think the Biden administration is doing better than just, just about anybody else. But I knew that this would be very bad for the country. And I recognized this issue of speech as the largest, most serious threat to our traditional way of life in this country. I recognized that a couple of years ago, but I wasn't the only one. Donald Trump said that political correctness was one of the greatest threats in the country. Conservatives have been talking about it for a long time. And so this raised the question, how come, if we've all decided this is one of the biggest issues, how come none of us have been able to solve it for 30 years? I mean, this goes back to old Uncle Aristotle, who said that in a, in a political regime such as ours, speech is politics, and politics is speech. Speech is what makes man the political animal. So if you control the speech, you control the whole politics. And I think it's because the left is very clever. And so we worry about the overt censorship of big tech and the overt censorship pushed by the government, very often using big tech as a proxy. But then there's the subtler and more insidious pre-censorship. If the left can change all the terms, if they can get us all men, women, and women men, for instance, to use a very timely example, then they they can really reshape the political order and win win debates before they even take place. Hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty genius strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I find myself becoming more and more skeptical 
whenever I'm seeing an institution and they're deeming some kind of speech or information or commentary when it's said to be unsafe. What do you think is the root of this constant babysitting and labeling of things as being unsafe? Well, I think the root comes from a very serious political problem and, and an astute political observation. Namely, if we will not order ourselves, if we will not control and discipline ourselves, then someone else is going to do it for us. It gets down to John Adams saying that the Constitution is built for a moral and religious people and it's unfit for anyone else. He's not being superstitious. He's not pushing soft soap or anything like that. He's just observing a plain fact. There will be order. Someone will impose the order. And, and so if we cannot govern ourselves, then someone is going to to lord power over us. I think it comes down to a, a distinction between liberty and licentiousness. You know, today we think of liberty as the ability to do whatever you want to do, but that is not how the founding fathers understood it. That's not how the Christianity has understood it. It's not how the pre-Christian philosophers understood it. They understood liberty to be the right to do what you ought to do, meaning you tamp down your base passions. This is the purpose of liberal education. You tamp down your appetites and you cultivate the higher virtues and you bring your appetites into accord with your rational will. But we don't really do that anymore. Now we've taken the modern liberal idea that the heroin addict is the most free man in the world as long as he's got a couple bucks to buy drugs and shoot up. Now we know that that man's not free. We know that that man's a slave. But you saw it come out in a, in a debate on the right a few years ago when a self-styled conservative columnist came out and defended drag queen story hours that it was, quote, one of the blessings of liberty, uh, causing, I think, James Madison to turn over in his grave. <laughs> because his, his point of view, and I want to be charitable to it, if, if I can be, is that if we tell perverts they can't twerk for kids in the public library, why the left will tell us that we can't go to church on Sunday which I would point out they're already telling us we can't do in many places and have for a year. But even further, if if you're telling me that we cannot really discern between a, a transvestite twerking for a toddler and a pastor preaching the gospel, if you're telling me that, then what you're telling me is we don't have faculties of reason, we no longer possess the moral conscience. And what that means is we don't have the capacity for self-government, which relies on those things. And so Big Daddy is going, Big Daddy government is going to and tell us that certain things are harmful for us to think about. And they're, they're going to insist upon a standard if we want to insist upon one ourselves. Hmm. Well, something I think that's interesting about you, one of the things, you've had training and work as an actor. And in this day and time, everyone knows actors seem to constantly be weighing in on something and recently weighing in on speech. Sean Penn recently on Conan O'Brien's podcast said that cancel culture has gotten ridiculous. I don't think I'm alone in thinking this. Why do you suppose there are so many actors and artists who seem utterly unaware of their own intolerance? <laughs> well, I've, I've long thought about the similarities between actors and politicians. Ronald Reagan famously was asked, can an actor become the president? And he said, how could the president not be an actor? And, and so traditionally how people have understood this is that the similarities are that actors and politicians are glib, liars, and uh, vain, <laughs> egotistical. <laughs> more cynical view, I think. But, but on the more charitable view of the similarities, I think that actors and politicians both have to care about the truth. The actor is the truth of the given circumstances and the politician, the political truth. And, and you have to love people. You know, the actor to create a character 
and the politician in order to survive on the campaign trail. If you don't like people, there's there's really easier ways to make a buck. So I'm not surprised that actors weigh in on politics. They've done that for a for a very long time. But but yes, they often have to be, in the words of Lynn Hanman, one of the legendary acting teachers in this country, they often have to be gullible fools in order to give themselves over to new characters and new circumstances. And so they, they can't really see outside of their, their own uh, themselves and the characters that they themselves have embraced. And, and what I would point out to Sean Penn, well, I'd point a lot of things out to Sean Penn, but, <laughs> but assuming I can only pick one, I would point out that he's got a point or even the, that the cancel culture people have a point that all cultures cancel in all cultures. Certain things are going to be off limits. Certain things are going to be taboo. The question is, what are those things going to be and how are we going to determine that? in the 1950s? For instance, you would be canceled for being a communist today. You will be canceled for not being a communist. <laughs> the, the fact of being canceled has not changed. It's just the standard by which one is ostracized or, or faces social consequences. And I think, that the, the left understands that, and that's why they've inverted all of our standards. And I think that the right needs to recognize that as well. That the, the procedural defense, the formal defense of free speech in the abstract, doesn't really mean anything to people who don't have anything to say. Hmm. <laughs> Do you find Nashville is more conducive to free speech than your past home, Los Angeles? You know, I, I think that many jail cells are more conducive to free speech. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we uh, lovingly refer to, to L.A. as Gomorrah by the Sea, and I think that Governor Mussolini is, is making that state even, even less livable. So people are moving out. Yes, I, I love breathing a sweet air of free in Tennessee. You're seeing a lot of people flee also to Texas, and then a lot of people flee to Florida. I, I, think I just got back from Florida a couple of days ago. I was there for two separate political events. And I think that was my eighth trip to Florida this year. It, it seems that every event that, that I'm going to, if it was supposed to be in California or New York or D.C., they've all relocated to Florida. One, because Florida reopened their state. They did not uh, permit capricious bureaucrats to continue to push these draconian lockdowns. But also because Florida has embraced, I think, some of the, the best American traditions of free speech. They permit people in an orderly way, right? They're not, they're not allowing it to descend, to descend into chaos and anarchy, but in an orderly way to pursue their interests and pursue the good and, and really participate in civic life. And so it's no surprise that people are moving to Tennessee and to Texas and all the way down to Florida. Absolutely. Do you think that there is a big misconception about Michael Knowles? <laughs> well, I'm not sure with those conceptions. In fact, if, if people have conceptions about me at all, I'm just pleased to be on their mind. <laughs> for, for some people on the left, I think I might be living rent free in their minds. Um, but I think there is a, a misconception about conservatives more broadly. Hmm. There are a number of misconceptions. One is that conservatives are anti-intellectual. And I'm not, I don't consider myself anti-intellectual. I spend most of my free time trying to engage with thinkers on the on the right, and even on the left, I look speechless. But I am, I suppose, anti-intellectual in that I don't think that we should be governed by a handful of self-appointed, ideologically homogenous eggheads who believe that, uh, who sneer at the American people and call them deplorable and irredeemable and bitter Bible-thumping idiots. Uh, so yeah, that would be, I think, a distinction worth 
people pointing out. And I think maybe one one misconception that's specifically about me, but it's about conservatives broadly, is that we're only interested in, quote-unquote, owning the libs. You know, my first book, my second book is called Speechless. My first book was wordless. It was called uh, Raising Civil for Democrats, a Comprehensive Guide, and it <laughs> didn't have any words in it. And it be, that also became a bestseller, actually. It was much much easier to write. It involved a lot of research. A lot of and, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a great defender of owning the libs. I think Ronald Reagan was a great defender of owning the libs. Humor can go a long way in politics. Uh, Donald Trump knew that as well. And I, I think it's perfectly fine not to take oneself too seriously. You know, the angels can fly because they can take themselves lightly, as G.K. Chesterton said. Hmm. But when we own the libs, at, at least many of us on the conservative side, we're on the libs with a purpose. It's not just a, a mere exercise in emotion or in uh, the tyranny of will. We're exercising our political will in accordance with what we consider to be objective truths, a, a transcendent moral order. We're trying to do some good, do good and avoid evil. And uh, far too many squishy conservatives have, have refused to wield political power. They've refused to, uh, if you'll pardon the phrase, own the libs, because they, they would prefer to say, lose with dignity, even though I don't think they're very dignified when they do it. Or they would prefer to accept the premises of their political opponents. Very often they accept the language of their political opponents. And I think that's not going to work. We obviously need to have principles. We need to pursue justice, which is the end of government, according to James Madison. But we need to have the courage to wield the political power that the people give us on the happy occasions that they give us to us. Courage is not just a virtue, but it's it's the prerequisite for all of the other virtues. Hmm. Well put. Has there been a compliment that has meant the most to you? A compliment? Well, you know, I, I this seems like a bit of a cop-out, I suppose, because we're here talking about the book. But I, I have been really, really pleased that people have read the book. You know, a lot of people bought my first blank book, and uh, <laughs> that, that was very fine of them. But I'm pleased that they actually spent their time to read the book, to engage with the arguments. It's, it's a bit iconoclastic in, in the sense of it's, it's knocking down some of the uh, the popular slogans on the right and on the left these days. So I'm really pleased that people would do that. And I suppose that the compliment that means the most to me is not just when I've convinced people of some political point or I've convinced them of some new cultural moral that they, they should adopt, but when we go beyond even politics and culture down to first principles and down to religion. There have been times that people have written into me and said, you know, Michael, something you said on the show or something you wrote in the book has made me think about some metaphysics, you know, it made me think about religion, brought me back to church, brought me back to thinking about sin and grace and good and bad. And my friend Andrew Clavin says that when uh, someone shows back up to church because of something you said, you get an extra toaster in heaven, which I'm very <laughs> pleased at. And I, look, I, I hope that I can collect it someday. But that, that really is, is what matters, because I think that if we're going to think seriously about politics, then we need to think seriously about justice and the good and the entire natural order and in even what that means, not just for the physical world, but for the metaphysical world as well, because we're we're not just body, but we're also soul and spirit, and, and we want some integrity and unity for, for all three. Well, I can tell you, you your, your book, Speechless, and your broadcast as well, there have been many times where it's put me into very, very closely thinking about a certain thing, so I can see how people say that about you. No, thank you, Paul. I'm so pleased to hear it. You have met, you just mentioned one, but you've met so many dynamic people. Who has impressed you the most? Gosh, there have been so many of them, I suppose. 
I'm, you know, I, I host a podcast with Senator Ted Cruz, and he's a guy who I think is is really misunderstood in his public image. You know, people will say all sorts of, I mean, they'll say all sorts of terrible things about all politicians, but the man is is really uh, extraordinarily intelligent and very kind. I mean, he's a he's a very serious guy. You know, it's easy to think of politicians as just all sorts of monsters and sociopaths and all, you know, all the negative ideas we have about politicians. But at least some of them are real people. So I'm, I'm you know, very impressed with, with Senator Cruz. Andrew Clavin, I think, you know, is, is one of the great public intellectuals alive today. You know, one of my, actually getting back to the point on owning the libs, one of my favorite people I've met in politics is Ann Coulter, who, who has this reputation as being mean and cruel and you know, just smacks down as far as red meat. She's an extremely intelligent woman, wonderfully supportive, very supportive of the book. So there have been just so so many of these people in public life. I wish I could say that I've been pleasantly surprised by prominent thinkers on, on the left, but I I haven't been really. Uh, and in part, I think it's because they sort of keep to themselves. You know, I've invited many leftists on the show, and virtually all of them have turned me down. And, uh, and my phone never seems to ring from CNN or any of any of those other properties. There's actually one time, one of the CNN news channels, was the HLN network, the sister network, uh, called me. It was the only time they've ever invited me on. And they invited me on because I had I had made a joking tweet about uh, United Airlines after United Airlines had been involved in killing a puppy. It was one of these, you know, sads or sensational stories. And HLN wanted me to defend the airline for killing the puppy. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> First of all, I was joking. I, I made a joke about how when I'm on a red-eye flight, I too want to kill puppies that bark on planes. Uh-huh. But I said, you know, this is really what you think of Republicans. You you think that we are all cruel, awful, terrible, puppy-killing monsters. And uh, that's unfortunate because, I, you know, I, I prefer to take a charitable view of the other side and, and point out why they're wrong and take what lessons I can from them. But uh, I'm not sure the charity goes in the other direction so much. <laughs> If you could smoke a cigar with anyone that you haven't met, who would it be and what would the cigar be that would match that occasion? There would be two people. Right. The obvious choice is, is Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, you know, very famous cigar smoker, one of the great statesmen of the last century. And I actually have smoked a cigar that almost certainly he smoked as well. It was a Cuban Romeo and Juliet cigar from the early 1960s. A friend of mine gave it to me for my wedding, and uh, this was Churchill's favorite cigar, and it was from the era that Churchill was smoking them. So I, I guess I would have to pick that one for him. And then, the, in all of history, you know, exempting, for instance, let's I don't, let's say let's say we exempt our Lord and Savior from this, but every other every other human being in, in history, who could I smoke a cigar with? I would choose Dante Alighieri, the divine poet. I would smoke a 2008 Partiga Casa del Habano. 15th anniversary of cigar is my favorite cigar in the world, and I, I think that the greatest poet in history deserves it. And I think it would be very fitting to talk to the divine poet in this way because the body is a temple, and the temple needs incense. You are very quick and very sharp, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and you are a man with a lot of perspective. What would you say is the best thing about being Michael Knowles? Oh, I mean, I gosh, I wake up every day and I go skipping down the street. What? what <laughs> it's really a really a, a wonderful journey and a wonderful ride, and and I I revel in it all the more because at least in terms of this phase of my career, it really began 
with a blank book. It began with a joke <laughs> I, I self-published to irritate my Democrat friends and, and relatives, and it became a, a national bestseller, got me other book deals, got me a show out of it, got me, you know, this sort of wild ride. And, and I really love that because it is evidence, truly, of unmerited grace. <laughs> the book was the embodiment of no effort on my own part. And I've, I've had such, uh, wonderful opportunities from that. And, and so this, I guess, ties into the ultimate answer, which is, I love my wife, I love my son, I love my house, I love my friends and my community and my job and all the great, wonderful things that I get to do. And all of that is contingent. All of that is contingent on the good Lord, the good Lord who gave me my life. I didn't choose to come into this world. I have no intention of choosing to go out of this world. And, uh, you know, for all of us, we are not entirely our own. We have obligations to our families, our communities, our state, and ultimately to our God. So, of course, as our founding fathers knew, as the pilgrims knew, as all wise statesmen have known throughout history, as all wise people have known throughout history, all thanks ultimately is due, uh, due to the good Lord, and I'm, I'm wonderfully pleased that I uh, was shaken out of my stupor and reverted back to the church, which is my, my constant source of joy. Great response. Everyone out there, you can check out MichaelJKnowles.com if you would like more information on Michael Knowles. Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds is available as a hardcover as well as ebook and audiobook. You can get it at Regnery.com, PremierCollectibles.com, BarnesandNoble.com, BooksAmillion.com, and some site called Amazon.com. Not sure about that one. <laughs> My last question, as you've been so generous with your thoughts and your time, is a, is a test question. If you were taking a <laughs> test, Michael, and the very last question was, how do you define Michael Knowles? What might you write there? Hmm. A blessed man. A blessed man. <laughs> a miserable seer redeemed and... Uh, I, I remember Blaise Pascal, one of the great geniuses of the modern era, he said that he doesn't, didn't want to be called a mathematician, he didn't want to be called a philosopher, he didn't want to be called a scientist, he just wanted to be called a gentleman. And I suppose the same, same would be true of me. You know, very often we identify ourselves by our jobs, or we identify ourselves by where we live, or we identify ourselves by our family relationships, or our, our hobbies. And all of those things are important. All of those constitute some aspect of our identity. But, uh, you know, I'm not surprised that our conversation has taken a religious turn as we probe deeper, because, you know, as Cardinal Manning says, it's at bottom all human conflict is theological. And I just think that probably the chief source of our social problems these days is this crisis of identity. Who are we? I mean, today, now many men think that they're women or think that there's some other gender that is one of the 70 or 80 imaginary genders that, that uh, grow and grow and proliferate every single day. The reason for this is because uh, in, when, when Moses is talking to God, <laughs> he says, who shall I tell the Israelites that you are? And uh, the Lord our God says, tell them I am who I am, that I am being itself, right? I am, I am who I am. And when the culture identifies itself with the I am, Christ says, before Abraham was, I am. When the culture identifies itself with I am, then the culture knows who it is. And when the culture turns away from the essence of being on, on which we all rely, then we are left with a, a pathetic question, which is, who am I? And we try on all sorts of crazy identities. But, but unless, we, unless we ground that identity in being itself, we're going to 
remain very confused. And I, I don't want to remain very confused. So I, that, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. Well, Michael Knowles, thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for your generosity of time. And I can tell a, a lot of thought and a lot of, of spirit put into these answers that you put forth. Well, thank you, Paul. The pleasure's all been mine. Thank you. All right, sir. Until next time. Goodbye.